It's good to be with you this morning on this Feast of Christ the King Sunday. Uh, if you're anything like me, uh, you grew up in a home that didn't have any sort of connection to a liturgical calendar or recognized feast days in the church, you might be wondering what on earth does Christ the King Sunday mean? And on the whole, this is a relatively recent addition to the church's calendar. And by recent, I mean like almost 100 years you know, ago. It uh, goes back to uh, 1925, marking this last day before the start of the Advent season, where we celebrate Jesus' birth um, and his kingdom that is coming into the world in full. Uh, it goes back to 1925, Pope Pius XI looked out at a divided world that was still reeling from the horrors of World War I. And he believed that the only thing that could heal the divisions and bring about reconciliation in Europe was if the churches of the continent could proclaim together that Jesus is king and that that kingship is above every other kind of loyalty out there. If Jesus is king, so the thinking goes, then my president or my chancellor is not king. And if Jesus is king, then we are ambassadors of his kingdom. More recently, the theologian Emmanuel Tongale put it like this. God's gift of a call to be Christ's ambassadors of reconciliation intends to unseat other lords. Lords like power, nationalism, race, or ethnic loyalty as ends unto themselves and give birth to deeper allegiances, stories, and spaces and communities that are a demonstration plot of the reality of God's new creation in Christ. Put simply, reconciliation both names the church as and requires the church to be the sign and agent of God's reconciliation. This morning as we end our vision series, we are going to continue to consider what it means to arrange our lives around this reality that Jesus is King. And what does that mean for us as we are called to be a community that is a sign and foretaste of the future? We're in Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, starting at verse 15, instead of ending there, and we're going to go to verse 20. So if you have your Bibles as Thomas comes up to do the reading, please follow along. And Paul starts out by painting a picture of the vastness of who Jesus is, what he accomplished, so that we can in turn learn to live in light of who he is. So today I want to think with you about what it means that Jesus is king and how that provides a center to our lives that holds amidst all of the other divisions and things swirling around for our attention. He is the, invis- he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask by the power of your spirit that these would not simply be words written to a church long ago and then forgotten, but that they would be alive and active. Would we not just be hearers of the word, but doers? We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is our King. Amen. Let's start out with a little thought experiment this morning. I want you to imagine what your life would look like if all of your time and all of your commitments were represented by a pie chart, okay? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your energy? How do you spend uh, your life, essentially? All the, the, the things that you do, be they physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, put them up there on a, on a map. Now, how much of your time is actually devoted to work or to school? That's the, that's the big chunk of our, of our lives, right? The big slice. And then we've got you know, a little bit of uh, time that we spend you know, playing taxi for our kids, driving them around from place to place or driving to places ourselves. We've got a little bit of time that we spend with family and friends. It's a priority for, for most of us. Uh, and we've, you know, got some time here and there volunteering at church, out in the community, uh, sports, whether we are coaching or, you know, whether we are, are you know, playing if we're a, a high school student or a, a, a young person. And then you've got a, a big chunk of time that you spend to doing all the things around the house, things like doing dishes or if you're a student doing homework, and, you know, taking the dog to the vet's. Uh, getting the tires repaired on your car because you keep running over nails from all the new construction going on around. Happened three times in the last six months, I'm just saying. And by now, you get to all those things, and most of the pie is used up. And then you got that little thin sliver left, that 2% for yourself. You try to cram in things like exercise and gardening and, and reading or, you know, binging the latest season of The Crown or whatever it is, fantasizing about the Atlanta Falcons getting above 500 in the football season. I'm just saying you're going to need a bigger slice of the pie for that. We, you take a look at it and you realize we live pretty complex lives. There are a lot of moving pieces and those are just the conscious hours. There are a lot of demands on our time. There are a lot of demands on our lives, and they're never really just about the time. No, every slice of the pie is actually vying for a bigger and bigger piece of our hearts as well. And the net result of that is we end up living with divided hearts. Now, a big chunk of our hearts we might pour into killing it at work, but another big portion, maybe the portion that we care about the most, or at least the, the part that we say we care about the most, goes into our deepest relationships, what it takes to, to tend those relationships, to nurture them. And the thing is, there's only so much pie, right? The more of your heart that goes to one of these other portions of your life, well, there's less room left over for the other portions, Still, another part of our heart is dedicated to practicing the way of Jesus, uh, to, to being apprentices to him. We spend time and we set it aside for community, for, for being in scripture, for being in service to others. Maybe if we're lucky, we can get like a bit of silence or an occasional half day for retreat. But for every single one of us, it boils down to a math problem, right? 
only so much pie to go around. And when we're with each part, our heart is there with us. We've got to be present. We've got to be attentive in each of these spheres of life that we operate in. We believe that our most cherished relationships occupy the biggest piece of our hearts. We say that we will drop everything to tend to their needs. We will give up whatever, gladly, whatever little piece we had reserved and set aside for ourselves if it will help meet the needs of those we love. But we also tell our supervisors, we tell our clients, that we will do whatever it takes to make sure that the organization that we work for reaches its goals. And then we come to church and we acknowledge that Jesus is king over all things. And the thing is, if you believe two of those statements, you're going to have a hard time with the third. If family commitments are what matters the most, then they will have a way of pulling our hearts toward them. If the narratives that we grew up with about who we are and what we can do start to set the horizon for how we think about our lives, then Jesus' call to come and follow will often find itself in collision with these voices that are in our head. And it's really no different at work either. Extreme example of this, uh, last week Elon Musk gave his employees at Twitter an ultimatum telling them that to build the platform of the future, they would need to be hardcore, commit to long hours and intense work, declaring, and I quote, only exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. Now, that's kind of an overtop, you know, Faustian sort of sell your soul for the company sort of deal, right? But really, none of us are a stranger to that idea that the only way to prove my worth, the only way to get a passing grade in life or in work is to be extremely hardcore, to offer exceptional performance. My value, my identity is tied up in that. And I say that because I know. Don't think that just because I'm a pastor that means that I'm immune to all this stuff. I found myself telling a friend of mine recently, um, I, look, I know that this is stupid, but sometimes I feel like I'm only as good as my last sermon. And after a pause, he smiled a kind of smirk and said, well, at least you know that's stupid. But here's the thing. If work commitments or school commitments or the culture of those things give you this sense that you need to, to work your, your tail off to, to make its success your success, to give it your all, that it was going to require every ounce of your energy, then it's going to be really hard to wrestle the crown away from those things. So we have a heck of a time trying to integrate and order our lives. And so to get by, we tend to compartmentalize our hearts. We take on a particular set of behaviors and practices for one environment, uh, like work or school or team sports or politics or whatever. And then we have another set of behaviors for different environments, uh, home, church, with family, with friends. But that poses some issues too, right? That's why we can read about uh, celebrity pastors or politicians getting mixed up in sex scandals or domestic abuse, and then carry on business as usual with little to no consequence. And they offer the justification, well, what I do in my private life has no bearing on my ability to do the work. Now, of course, that is a statement about competency. 
And that may be true about competency, but we used to also care about character. Ah, but the world's gotten too ugly, we say. And so we kind of parse out the parts of our lives where character still matters, the, the private life, and then in the public life, we say, well, results are what matter in the public life. And so the result is that an executive can be ruthless at work, cutting corners, you know, dodging little loopholes here and there, burning out employees, and then can come to worship on Sunday and be all in on God's grace. The public and the private, they're kept separate. And it's easy to create this kind of wall between the secular parts of our lives and the spiritual parts of our lives. Each one of these compartments has a different Lord, has a different set of rules. On the basketball court and in the workplace, you know, you're taught to be aggressive. You're taught to, to throw elbows out there, to get ahead. That doesn't really work if you're volunteering in the nursery. In school and work, you're trained to do everything you can to kind of set yourself apart from the competition, to give yourself an edge over those others, which turns out the competition is everyone else. But in the church, you're taught to be humble. You're taught to guard and protect the dignity of others. There are these environments where we, we plan for love and for compassion and humility to, to win out. But then we're afraid, well, actually, I'm not going to get very far in the real world with that stuff. And so we create a wall between them. And that means that we just kind of move through life going from one compartment to the other, encountering a different world that has a different set of rules, that has ultimately a different king. But after a while, we kind of get worn out by this. Our, our souls get worn out by this and the little compartmentalized walls start to break down and disintegrate. We forget which rules and values are at play in the particular environment that we're in and that is why you lost control and went nuclear on somebody this week when you were supposed to be loving and kind. It's because we actually really can't compartmentalize at all. We are shaped by all of these spheres that we are in, and we don't live compartmentalized lives. It's not how we are wired. Oxford Dictionary offers two different definitions of integrity. And the first, it notes, uh, refers to that which is unbroken or undivided, not mixed, that which is structurally sound. The, the, the classic images of a bridge, right? You've got all of these different parts working toward a unified whole. Structure, structural integrity means that all of these pieces that are solid and unified, they, they come together to contribute to one common purpose, holding the, the road up so that you can go across it. Well, the second definition of integrity claims that it is about having sound moral virtue. And when it comes to people, we assume that it's the second definition really that we're talking about here. But actually, both of those definitions apply because you cannot really have sound moral virtue if your heart remains divided, mixed, or compartmentalized. The word integrity itself is a derivative of the word integration to bring things together. And having integrity does not mean that we have climbed to some level or achieved some degree of moral purity. It simply means that we have found a center to unify all of life. 
But then the question comes with, with life pulling us in so many different directions and with all these different spheres where the rules keep changing and success is measured so differently, how on earth are we going to find a unified center? Well, that is exactly the dilemma that Paul was addressing to the church in Colossae. He, he's writing to this young church plant that is struggling. It's being led away by all kinds of uh, false teaching, this teaching that is causing them to doubt their discipleship, that's causing their fellowship to disintegrate, actually, and drift into a different kind of gospel, into actions and behaviors that look more like their cultural background than it does like the Jesus who they have come to worship as Lord and King. And so he's telling them, no, you've got to find a center that will hold. And once you find the one who is holding all things together, you'll be able to find something that unifies all of these divided and desperate and disparate parts of your life. Here's the thing. Jesus has called you to live and work in different parts of the world whose values are often in conflict with each other. He sends you to the marketplace or to school where success is measured in your performance. But he's also the one who sends you back home and into your neighborhood where success is measured in the quality of your love. He calls you to carry the pain and brokenness of the world in your heart. But it's clear from the Gospels that he also wants you to find deep rest in him. That he actually expects his followers to be with him like they are enjoying a wedding feast. He calls you to tend to your soul. And like a good steward, he tends you also to give it away for the sake of others. So how do you do all that well? Well, you can't. Let's close in prayer. And the reason you can't is because discipleship to Jesus is not an achievement. That's why we say around here, that we are practicing the way of Jesus. Trying, even trying really hard is not going to allow you to integrate your life. It's only going to burn you out. So Paul is not writing to these churches. He's not telling them, you just try harder. Come on guys, just try harder. Muscle up, white knuckle it through. He's telling them to rest in the only person who does. He's telling them to abide in Jesus. He is the one that we seek who orders all things. In Jesus, he tells the Colossians, all things are being brought together. And he says all things five times, so you cannot miss it in just these short five verses. I've got a list here with all the things that he, he talks about, and it's a pretty staggering list. He says that in him and through him, God made the world, God made everything that is. All things came into existence. He binds all things in existence together, things both physical and spiritual. He also says Jesus is the hope of the future, the one who opened up a way to victory over death. He is the pioneer of a renewed humanity. Christ is the one who will restore and heal all the things that are broken and messed up in the world through his death and resurrection. And most significantly, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who most clearly reveals to us what Jesus looks like. 
So in the same way that you got dressed this morning and you stood before a mirror and you saw that perfect image reflected back at you, when we see Jesus, we see this perfect reflection of God back at us. He is the one who allows us to see God most clearly, all of God's justice, all of God's mercy, all of God's faithfulness and compassion. If you want to know what God is like, you just simply look to Jesus. He is the one holding all things together. Look to Him and you'll find a center. So if Jesus is King, then that means He doesn't just reign over church things or home things. No, He reigns over all things. He is supreme over all things, even the things that are about profit and performance. Not just the things that we do well. Not just the things that arise out of our natural talents, those things that we we do that we are pleased to put into God's hands. No, all things means even the things that we are ashamed and embarrassed by. We put them in His hands. He is over all things. Even the parts of us that feel most disintegrated. Not just the things we control, but the things that we don't. All things things hold together in Jesus. And so you can't say, not my relentless work schedule. That's too far gone. All things. You can't say, not my broken home life. We've drifted too far apart from one another. No, all things. You can't say, this child that is in so much pain that I don't even recognize anymore. All things. You cannot say not the broken social systems or the graceless political divisions in our culture. No, all things. All things means all things. Jesus is the one who modifies and clarifies everything. It is His way we are practicing. It is His renewal we will see. So if you want to find a center for all of the parts of your life that are atomized and broken apart, look to Him. He is the center. Writing to the 1960s, uh, to those who were facing a similar kind of disintegration, the great spiritual writer Thomas Merton offered this bit of wisdom. If you want to have a spiritual life, you must unify your life. A life is either all spiritual or not spiritual at all. No man can serve two masters. Your life is shaped by the end you live for. You are made in the image of what you desire. So what's at the center of your life? What is shaping your desires? What is guiding your heart? What is holding your life together? Over the last six weeks as a community, we have been looking at these different practices that shape us to become a community of grace, rest, engagement, contribution, and reconciliation. There are things that we see in the life of Jesus like attention to scripture and Sabbath, uh, practicing hospitality and service and justice and generosity, finding a new center in our work by seeing that as part of your discipleship so you can contribute with him to the flourishing of the world. And so as we close out this series, the last part of the study guide, if you are following along, is about putting all of these things together in what is called a rule for life. And again, if that phrase is new to you, notice that it is rule singular, not rules plural.
plural. This is not a set of rules. This is an invitation to take a look prayerfully with Jesus at your life and allow Him to consider what are the things that hold it together. What kind of structure allows us to remain centered on Him? Because He is the one who holds all things together. We've covered this ground a few times, so I'm not going to uh, go over it again. We'll put up a few videos on our website to serve as kind of companions to that. But I want to offer just a little bit of encouragement and a reminder that a rule of life is simply this. It is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms designed to allow you to be with Jesus, to be with Him, to be like Him so that you can go out and do the kinds of things in your life if you were called to live the life that you were called to live. It's an answer to that question of how do we live in alignment with the reality that Jesus is our King? How do we allow Him to hold together all of the divided parts of our lives? Make no mistakes, friend. Paul is telling us that Jesus is busy at work reconciling and redeeming every square inch of creation, which means that He is reconciling and redeeming every square inch of division in your own heart. Now, that doesn't mean that the world is always going to look like it belongs to Jesus. Or that people are always going to welcome the reality that He is the King. But it does mean that the God who came to us in Jesus can be found in all things. He is there holding together all the things that we can't hold together. He is the center of a, of a life that is pulling us in all kinds of different directions and all these different values. He is our organizing and our integrating center. The reason that we come to church on Sundays isn't to find a sanctuary from all the fragmented pieces of our hearts it is to have a renewed vision come upon us so that we can see Jesus and we can recognize him in all those places as well so that we can worship him as king wherever we find ourselves Jesus is at the dinner party he's at the birth of a child he's in the workplace he's in the wedding reception He's in the peace agreement between nations. But he's also in the conflicts, in the divided home, in the cultural battlegrounds. He's even in the places that we mourn and grieve. He can be found in all of the painful, confusing, conflicted, and divided parts of your life as well. And what he is doing in all of those spaces is holding heaven and earth together he is holding you together in the name of the father son and holy spirit amen and now almighty god as we come to you we acknowledge all of those places of our lives that are broken that are fragmented that are awaiting and groaning with all of creation for redemption. And God, we, we give them to You. We acknowledge that You are King, not just of our private lives, but of our public lives as well. 
that you are Lord. And so God, as we enter into this season of Advent, as we go this week into our our homes and are mindful of all of the ways that you have blessed us, we know that you are the center that holds. Father, we, we come acknowledging that our hearts are divided. And so we give them to you to build, to renew, to make all things new. Amen. Good morning, everyone.